Welcome to Hive Mind, the weekly podcast from the Beehive about the latest and greatest in pop culture. I'm Meg Walter in studio today with Eli McCann. Hey, Eli. Hello. Sadly, Nick will not be joining us today. He sends his regrets and he will be here next week. What do his regrets, what do his regrets look like? I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I will do anything if you let me stay on the podcast. Wow. Can we get that in writing? <laughs> Before we go any further, we need to tell you today's episode is brought to us by the Utah Symphony. We'll talk more about the wonderful things they're doing a little later. But first, Eli, I want to hear about what you have been watching. Ooh, I get to go first. Well, I know that I'm stealing one of yours, so I won't say very much about it. But you recommended that I watch Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should just talk about it now. Did you watch last night's episode? I've only seen episode one so far. How many episodes are out now? There are three now. The third one appeared last night. Okay. Episode one was fantastic. Yeah. I have a little bit of an obsession with Chernobyl generally. Uh -huh. I lived in Ukraine and I've known a lot of people who were affected by Chernobyl or have memories of it all happening and being really freaked out. I have never been to Pripyat, which is the town, you know, next can to Can you the go there? You can go there. I have friends who have gone there. Every time I've gone to Ukraine, I've tried to go there, but I've always just not had time or yeah. not been able to work it out. I think it's so fascinating, and I have spent an absurd amount of time on the internet looking at pictures of Pripyat today because I think it's super fascinating that it's there's... beautiful, right? Well, the area is beautiful, but the yeah. town is like a Soviet ghost town, Yeah, and it's really interesting. Anyway, the show Chernobyl on HBO is pretty intense, and I mean, I was like squealing and very uncomfortable the whole time, but it's really well produced. Um, it gets more intense. Does it? The third episode, which premiered last night you start seeing the aftermath on the people who were there. The radiation. And I had to look away. Oh. It is very, very hard to watch. So I'm kind of nervous about that because I don't do well with that sort of thing, but I'm so fascinated in the topic. I had my Crosswords app open just so I could have something else to look at because it was pretty gnarly. We both spent time in Eastern Europe mm -hmm. serving LDS missions, and I, maybe you felt this way, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is... My mission. Yeah. It starts out in this tiny little apartment with a cat and oh, yeah. you can like smell it by looking at it. Yeah. And all the housing is exactly like the housing look. These big concrete, they call them domes, but they're big concrete buildings yeah. where hundreds and hundreds of people lived. But it's like beautiful. Yeah. The countryside is beautiful. Yeah. They filmed it in Lithuania. Okay. It so, was, but halfway through the episode of when they were showing the apartment complexes, I said to Skyler, they'd film this in Ukraine or somewhere very close yeah. to Ukraine. Yeah, it is yeah. very Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. They really nailed that. I'm actually listening to the podcast about the show. It's called Chernobyl, the podcast. Peter Sagal of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me oh. is speaking with the show creator. And they kind of go into both the making of the show and the history of Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. I didn't really even know what happened. Mm. I knew the nuclear reactor exploded. I didn't understand why. Yeah. I didn't understand how bad it actually was. I knew it was bad, mm -hmm. obviously, but I didn't understand the catastrophic consequences and the catastrophic consequences that they stopped. Yeah. Because it could have been really, really yeah. bad, which yeah. they go into in the show. There's a museum in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, which is a couple of hours south of where the disaster happened. And it's a Chernobyl museum. Pretty good one. It's small. But they have in there the corpse of a two-headed pig that was kind of like a pig baby that I'm sure was born dead. And then a cow that had like seven legs. Oh and it's gosh. just the creepiest looking things. But they were animals that were near where this all happened or whatever. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it's a super fascinating topic. If you can stomach the intensity, 
I would recommend the show so far. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very, very well done. Yeah. Okay. What else have you been watching? Okay. Survivor ended. The season okay, ended. Okay. People were mad. Yeah. What? Tell me why. Yeah. See, okay. Spoiler alert if you have not finished it. Season 38 was a really interesting concept. I've, I've talked about it on this podcast, but they were taking the people who were getting voted off and putting them on this island that had no resources. Typically, once you get voted off, you go like stay in a resort until the show's over. Mm -hmm. These people were starving. It was really intense and they didn't have any direction on like what was going to happen. And so they just sort of sat and waited. And a lot of the cast members, I follow them on Twitter, see them in interviews, said that that experience of being sent off to this other island was just a life-changing experience for them in ways that they had never anticipated because it was the most difficult thing they've ever Mm -hmm. done and yada, yada, yada. Well, what they ended up doing in the show is right at the end, when there were only four people left, they had those people on the other island compete to have one of them come back into the show at the 11th hour, essentially. Mm -hmm. So this guy, Chris, comes back in, makes it back into the show. They gave him a bunch of advantages. The producers just gave him some advantages so that he could be immune from votes. And then he made it to the finale, and all the people who he was just on that island with get to vote for who the winner is, so they all just voted for him. So the winner ended up being somebody who had been voted off very early in the game and hardly played. And so it was just weird. And I think this guy actually is pretty good at the game. He played very hard for his last couple of days, but he had a leg up. Sure. And so I think a lot of people are really frustrated and annoyed that there were these people who actually persevered and out-survived, outlasted everybody else. But then this guy swooped in and just got the award at the end. Yeah. I think they made a mistake. And so the season was really fascinating for about half of it, and then it just really petered out. Are I was disappointed. Petition to have them remake it. <laughs> well, the good thing about Survivor is they will never stop remaking it yeah. because there are two seasons a year. <laughs> that was season thirty-eight. Season forty, everyone is getting really excited about because the rumor is they're going to bring back only winners, people who have won prior Ooh, seasons, all-stars. and have them all compete against each other. And I think that's going to be really cool. Yeah. But what I wanted to say is, I and everyone's parents are paying for cbs all access yes and the greatest thing about that is that you can watch any season of survivor all the way through so i started watching season one of survivor which aired in the year 2000 and did you watch it originally i've never seen season one so this is i know who wins because you know it's iconic and whatever else but it is so fascinating whether you're a survivor fan or not to watch season one of survivor because no reality television program like this had ever happened before. Right. It was the first of its kind. It was the first of its kind. And all of these shows, The Bachelor, The Amazing Race, all of these kinds of shows really are influenced by the fact that Survivor existed and became what it became. And everybody sort of patterned themselves off of what happened initially. And it's clear watching season one that even the producers of Survivor didn't quite know what their show was supposed to be. So it's filmed more like a documentary than a reality competition. Yeah. And it's almost, to me, it almost is filmed like we want to do a documentary about people who have to live on an island with limited resources and kind of survive that with strangers. And to incentivize them so they don't quit, we'll put this award at the end that, you know, they get. And so there are like voiceovers and it feels very like the planet Earthy. Like Jeff will pop in and like the survivors are hanging out on the beach today because (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And, And like there's no game strategy at all. Every night they're like, I guess we have to go vote someone out. Sure hope it's not me. And then they go and vote and like there's no consistency in what they're doing. It is really fascinating. So 
if you're even remotely a Survivor fan and you are one of the parents of the country that is paying for CBS All Access, I recommend that you go watch that. Finally, I'm glad Nick isn't here today because I feel like I'm taking a lot of time. But yeah, this is great. The reason I have gathered today is because I am so excited to tell you about a thing I discovered. Okay. Do you know, first of all, have you ever heard of Utah Wolf Productions? No. Okay. Utah Wolf Productions is, there's this guy who makes these films. He's based out of Utah County. And his films are so bad (laughs) to a point that to call them low budget isn't accurate because when I think of low budget, I think of, oh, straight to DVD movies or maybe an indie film that's actually pretty good just doesn't have. No, this looks like something you would have made with your friends with your home video camera out in the backyard when you were 13. And it's like a business for this guy? Mm Mm-hmm. It's his life. Okay. And this guy makes these films. He's made. Is it profitable? No. Okay. Not profitable. He's made hundreds of them. You can watch them on utahwolfproductions.com, I think is the website, or just Google it. Yeah. And they're mostly fantasy films with really bad $2 wigs and people pretending that they live in a different time, but you can see like the road behind them. Like there, There's no attempt to make it look very real. Okay. The acting is just so lovely, <laughs> and uh, the dialogue is... You really can't understand until you go and like watch a 10-second clip of any of this. It is terrible. I discovered this when I was in college 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And my friends and I would occasionally just pull up these videos and just stare at them because they're just so addictive. Yeah. About every three or four years, I remember that this exists and I'll go Google it to see if like they're still making videos. And they are. Yeah. The other night, I couldn't sleep. And I was like, I wonder if Utah Wolf Productions is still around. So I pull it up and I look and I start watching some of their more recent videos. And I get to this video where there is what, as far as I can tell, the best Jack Black impersonator I have ever seen in my entire life. And so I'm watching this video, and I'm like, this guy sounds and looks exactly like Jack Black. And after a while, I was like, I kind of feel like that is Jack Black. So I look it up, and it is Jack Black. What? This guy got Jack Black to be in one of his movies because Jared Hess, who made Napoleon Dynamite, went to college with this filmmaker, and he is a big fan of this filmmaker, probably for ironic reasons, and introduced Jack Black to him years ago. So Jack Black became a big fan, and this guy found out that Jack Black liked him, so he wrote him a letter and was like, will you come be in one of my movies? And Jack Black was like, absolutely, I will. So Jack Black is in one of his movies. I'm telling you all of this because two years ago, somebody made a documentary called The Insufferable Gru. Mm-hmm. The filmmaker's last mm-hmm. name is Gru. And the entire documentary is about Utah Wolf Productions and in the end about how he was able to get Jack Black to be in one of his movies. And this documentary is phenomenal. Okay, It is some of the best television I've ever seen. They show clips of this guy's movie so you get a good feel for how bad this stuff is. The guy is pretty crazy and also delusional. Like He truly thinks he's like this brilliant filmmaker. And it's a little bit sad, too, because his wife is kind of getting dragged along with it, although she's a little bit of an enabler and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> but I 100% recommend everyone in the Wait, world go and watch it? this. So I don't know where I watched it. I pulled it up on my Fire Stick, The Insufferable Grew, and it was like, you can watch it free on this app. So okay. I hit play and it just started playing. So I don't know what app it was, but search around. It's worth it 100%. It's like a great 90 minutes. Can't wait to watch that. Okay. That's all I have. Awesome. Thanks. Um, we talked about Chernobyl, which really it's, it's a hard watch, but it's very good. Mm. There's a show that I've been told to watch 5 million times and I was like, man, I'll get to it eventually this week. 
Steve and I actually got to it, and everybody was right. It totally lives up to the hype. It's called Fleabag. It is by Phoebe Wallersbridge, who wrote Killing Eve. Oh, which you love. I love. She is the writer of the show and the star of the show. It is the best thing I've ever seen. Really? What's it about? It's about this woman in her 20s, mid-20s, and she is a mess. Mm-hmm. Her mom has recently died. Her best friend has recently died. She's very doesn't care at all about what anyone thinks. Very rowdy, very says things to upset people, very crass, very sexual, just kind of a hot mess all around. And the first season is all about how that lifestyle has kind of ruined her Mm. to a point where she's a complete mess by the end. It's very funny. It's a very funny show. It's also very touching. She has some really powerful insights that she delivers through characters that say things that you're like, oh, my gosh, Hmm. that is phenomenal writing. The second season just came out, and she's a different person in the second season because of the experience of the first season. But she still has some of the same tendencies. And we're only two episodes in, but it is very, very good. Where do I watch it? Amazon. I cannot wait for that. It is Sexual, it is inappropriate at times, but it's surprisingly moving and surprisingly empathetic. Okay. So Fleabag on Amazon. We talked about Chernobyl. Let's get to why we've gathered here today. And that is to talk about our favorite Harry Potter movies. Last week, we talked about our favorite Harry Potter books. Mm -hmm. We are doing this because the Utah Symphony is showing, they're playing with and showing Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, June 20th, 21st, 22nd. There are still some tickets available. You can get your tickets at utahsymphony.org. We're going. We're very excited. Mm -hmm. I'm not even bringing children. I'm just going. You're just going. By myself. Because it's wonderful. Yeah. So my favorite Harry Potter movie is actually the one I took Ivy, my daughter, to see with the Utah Symphony in December. And that's the third, Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm -hmm. This movie is directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who is a phenomenal filmmaker. Yeah. And I feel like we'd come off the other two, which were directed by Christopher Columbus, and were very clunky and very chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and then, and then, and then. And it was not in any way an adaptation of the books. It was a regurgitation filmed version of the books. He had a pretty uphill task generally because he had to create this visual world. He didn't have anything to look off of. Oh, sure. And also he had this fan base that was ready to crucify him if he skipped anything from the books. And so I think that maybe he went a little bit too far in that direction, just trying to make sure that he couldn't be criticized for that. But the reality is not everything on paper looks good on screen and you do need to consolidate because of time restraints. And so he had a really hard time with that. And I agree with you that Alfonso Cuaron did a really good job fixing that problem for the third movie. I mean, it feels like a movie. The Mm -hmm. third one feels like a movie, and he took some artistic liberties. It's a polarizing movie. Mm -hmm. A lot of people saw this third one, and they didn't like that it had a tone and a voice and a vision of its own, and that was upsetting to some diehard fans. It was also upsetting because it was the first movie to feature the new Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. The previous Dumbledore (laughs) had passed away, and I actually preferred the first Dumbledore. Everyone does. And so this new guy was like, and he's such a big part of these stories that I feel like that was a distracting aspect. But looking back, having seen all the movies, I think this one stands out as being very well done. It's dark. It's grown up. 
And we talked about this last week, but it's the first movie and book where you're like, wow, Hermione is the star of yeah, this series. Yeah, kick ass. Hermione does a really great job in that movie. Well, Emma mm-hmm. Watson's character does a really great job of being the problem solver yeah. and the hero at the end of the day. Yeah, she's believable. Tell me, why do you dislike Dumbledore 2.0? He comes off as rude. Yeah. Right? Harsh. A little too gruff, a little too loud. Where the first Dumbledore was like slow and old and soft-spoken and just wise. Mm-hmm. And this one seems almost too involved. Yeah. What about you? No, I agree. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire choking Harry like it's a sketch from The Simpsons? Was really, really strange in the fourth movie. Yeah. I've heard some people say, and I don't know how I feel about this, that the duel between Voldemort and Dumbledore at the end of the fifth movie would have been much harder to pull off with the first actor who played Dumbledore. I can't remember his name. Oh, What's his name? I don't remember. Because they needed a Dumbledore who could seem strong and able to sort sure. of withstand some of that. I don't know how I feel about that. I think on one level, the strength of Dumbledore's character in the books, in the literature, is not his outward strength. It's like his inward wisdom yeah. and intelligence. And so I feel like they could have actually done a really, really good job putting him in those positions and showing that the wisdom and intelligence that he holds makes his outer strength irrelevant. Hmm. I don't know. There are a few moments where Dumbledore 2.0, I think, pulls it off just fine. But for the most part, every time he's on screen, I'm just thinking, you're not doing this right. This isn't how you're supposed to be. Which I don't know if that's his fault or... The screenwriters, I don't know if it was just a bad casting choice. I don't know. Tell me about your favorite, and then you've come up with some categories I want to go over. I have. I think my favorite movie is the sixth movie. I really, really like the sixth book a lot. But one of the reasons why I like the sixth movie so much is I think that they do a very good job of capturing the tone of the Tom Riddle backstory. Mm -hmm. And I really like those flashbacks where Dumbledore goes to visit Tom Riddle in the orphanage. And there's just like this darkness and kind of creepiness about it that I think they capture so, so well. I like the way they portray this scene at the end or toward the end where Dumbledore and Harry go into the cave. I think it's very creepy. I think it's intense. Having read the book and then watching the movie, I felt the intensity of that scene play out really, really well. The tower scene at the end of the movie where Malfoy, spoiler alert on all of this, by the way, Mm -hmm. where Malfoy is supposed to kill Dumbledore is, I think, really, really well done. Mm -hmm. And they capture the feeling of the book of book six so well, which I think is the darkest of the books. And it's probably the movie I complain the least about. Okay. Because omissions in these various movies, there are some really, really, really tough omissions. And the sixth movie, I have fewer of those. I think we should mention how impossible of a task this was to make movies off of these books that are loved and long. Yeah. And when a lot of these movies were being made, the series had not even been completed, Yeah, which kind of annoyed me even at the time. I was like, well, maybe we should wait to make the movies until we see how this thing ends. And you can see in some of the earlier movies that there are omissions that they made because there were parts of the books that didn't seem as relevant that later became very relevant. And then the movies had this problem where they suddenly had to try and figure out how to fix the fact that they didn't present something much earlier that now is very relevant. Right. And maybe they'll remake all of these one day and it'll be a totally different deal. Of course they're going to remake them. Yeah, a hundred times. That's that's inevitable. Yeah. I want to go over these categories that you have come up with. Best and worst casting decision. I mean, I think Dumbledore 
that second Dumbledore is probably the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I think all three of the main kids were really well cast. And that's a risky thing to cast 11-year-olds into yeah. roles that they're going to end up playing into their adulthood. And I think they nailed it. And they're all hot now. Yeah. <laughs> they all got... It, Which is lucky. Because you're 11, you can go one way or the other. Yeah. I think one of my favorite casting decisions of the whole series is Dolores Umbridge. Mm, she's great. Oh, my gosh. The second she's on screen, you just want to throw a brick at her head. I think my favorite is Emma Thompson as oh, uh, Professor Trelawney. I mean, Snape. I think that he... Alan Rickman nailed it was incredible nailed it there are a few of the actors that I now see in my mind when I read any part of the Mm -hmm. books and then other characters where I just have my previous vision of you know what they look like and he is one that every time I read any part of the books when Snape is there I hear his voice he is Snape to me right I think McConaughey Maggie Smith is kind of similar to me in that way iconic yeah she captured the feeling of the character that I had felt when Mm -hmm. I first read the books. I think all of the Weasleys are very well cast. Mm -hmm. It's jarring because seeing the movies after you've read the books, you're like, oh, that's not what I pictured. Mm -hmm. But in some cases, it's like, oh, but maybe it's a little better. Yeah. I felt that way about Snape. That wasn't what I pictured, but it was really good. Side note about the Snape and a lot of the casting decisions, I do have to just decide not to think about their ages because in the first movie... (laughs) Snape is supposed to be like 31, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry, no. <laughs> Alan Rickman is not 31 in no. the first movie. And so, I don't know, I'm willing to give a pass on that sort of thing, but yeah, like, I mean, it is kind of ridiculous. Regina George, the actress. What is, Rachel McAdams. Re- Rachel whoa, McAdams. whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I, both of our, we both just had like a brain reboot. <laughs> I know, that was really weird. She was 27 when she was in yeah. Mean Girls. So, you know, you just have to Whatever. suspend. The entire cast of Friday Night Lights was like... <laughs> 40. <laughs> their next project was the Golden Girls reboot. Yeah. <laughs> um, worst omissions. I'm going to be honest, I couldn't think of any... I'll tell you, I have one in mind. Okay. I think that the most unforgivable omission is pretty much everything that happens at King Cross in the final movie. Okay. In the book, Harry dies. He goes to King's Cross, this heavenly, weird spirit version of King's Cross. Dumbledore comes out, and they have this full conversation. It's a beautiful chapter. Dumbledore explains a lot of things that Harry didn't previously know. A lot of sense is made of everything that's happened, and Harry's given a choice to go back and finish the fight if he wants to. In the movie, he pops in... Dumbledore like comes out like this weird ghost Santa and is like, ho, 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 (laughs) well, hello. And Harry's like, do I need to go back? And he's like, you sure do. And then he disappears. And that is the whole scene. And I'm like, no, this is one of the most important chapters of the entire series. And it's condensed down to about 10 seconds and not a single bit of helpful information is exchanged. So that really pissed me off a lot. A lot of people are really annoyed that they basically omitted or completely changed the Grindelwald plot in the mm-hmm. in the entire series. And in the books, Grindelwald ends up not throwing Dumbledore under the bus when Voldemort goes to him to try and gather information about the Elder Wand, and Grindelwald won't do it, won't give him the info. And in the movie, Voldemort shows up to Grindelwald, and he's like, tell me about the Elder Wand, and Grindelwald's like, ha, 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 Dumbledore has it, and like just completely throws him under the bus. And like that's a really important plot point. And at King's Cross, when Harry goes there, Harry, in the book, tells Dumbledore, like, Grindelwald ultimately chose to not 
betray you. And like, that's a really important thing. It's important for the movies that have since come, which I don't watch and I don't care about, but it's still important to the larger universe of the Harry Potter world. So if you have sensed that I absolutely despise the final movie that is because i absolutely despise the final movie i think it is such do i think it is such a bad movie okay because of how they conclude it there's no explanation they just completely rape this beautiful plot that they've been building for eight movies yeah i think part one of the seventh book i think that movie is really really good Mm -hmm. and then it was just such a letdown when the finale happened I don't remember feeling let down, but I remember feeling like, oh, there's a lot they left out. Yeah. I think that the most universally hated film is the fourth. Mm. And I think that might be because it was after the third, which is like, wow, that's a good movie. And then the fourth went back to like, and then, and then, and then, and then is probably my least favorite. Is the fourth one where their hair is the worst or is that? Yes. Yeah. Which is rough hair time for everybody. I mean, we just watched Josie and the Pussycats. Uh uh, And the early 2000s were a rough time. Yeah. (laughs) Fashion-wise, hair-wise, like the... Clothes were just frumpy, kind of. Frosted lip gloss and the (laughs) straightened hair. Like, it was just... It was hard (laughs) for everybody. Uh, All right. What about best book to film change? Do you have one? This isn't really a, a change. I guess this is more of a best book to film adaptation. I think my favorite thing in the entire film series is the animated telling of mm-hmm. the three brothers. What's that story called? I can't remember. The Elder Wand. And yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. In part one of book seven, that mm-hmm. movie. I remember being in the theater. It was the night before I took the bar. And my sister was like, let's go watch Harry Potter. You shouldn't be studying tonight. So I brought note cards to the movie theater with me, which I did not look at, preparing to take the bar exam. I just remember watching it. And when that scene came on about halfway through whispering, this is amazing. Yeah. And it holds up. I don't know if you've watched it in recent years, but it is such a beautiful animation and such a good telling. And I think they may have even done it verbatim from the book. And so maybe that's why the writing is so good in that part. That's not really a book to film change, though. So I put that category down without really anything in mind wondered if you would i can't think of anything okay if they remade the films what would we like to see this time more of hermione's elf crusade Mm -hmm. which i think was such an interesting story that's like barely mentioned in the books yeah and it still says so much about her character yeah and it's this really interesting part of the wizarding world because you mentioned this last week but when you're first introduced to the wizarding world it's like oh look everything's happy and magical Mm -hmm. and then you start to realize there's just like muggle world there's kind of a seedy underbelly to everything yeah and lots of problems and the fact that these house elves are all slaves and that she's the one person who cares and is trying to liberate them is so interesting and i understand they can't fit everything in i just wish they would have cut out something else instead yeah yeah do you think that they could remake this as a series a television series i think they should and do like a full season for each book absolutely i mean everybody would, wa- everybody would watch absolutely. that i would absolutely watch that netflix maybe sure right yeah sure the unlimited budget yeah <laughs> <laughs> And they could bring back everybody as adults now. Like oh, yeah. Hermione could be McGonagall. Yeah, I would take that. Daniel Radcliffe could be one of the defensive against the Dark Arts teacher. He could be Lupin. He'd be a good Lupin. He would be a good Lupin. Does the Harry Potter fan base have the attention span for a series where they already know how it ends? In other words, are they going to watch eight hours 
of a depiction of the first book of Harry Potter? Yes. All right. Wouldn't you? I would. I would. But I'm just wondering if people would be like, I know how this ends. You'd be willing to sit through, a lot of people might be willing to sit through a two-hour movie portraying a book that they love, but don't necessarily want to sit through eight hours of a television series when they know where it's going. I think that's false. Yeah. All right. Hulu just released Catch-22. Oh, yeah. Steven loves Catch-22. It's his favorite book. Really? He has never been like a Harry Potter guy. He was never like a big Tolkien guy. So he's never had the experience of watching a beloved piece of literature be adapted into a film or series. In this case, it really stressed him out. Really? And it was interesting because to me, it felt like when I watched the first Harry Potter and it was like, wait, but what about what? Why'd you do it like that? Like, why are you? Yeah. No, that's not how it's not how he looks like he couldn't he couldn't even finish it. Yeah. I find that I enjoy the movies, the Harry Potter movies, more if I'm watching it with more distance between the last time I read it and the time that I'm watching it. Yes. Because I don't remember what they're leaving out. And I'm just like, sure. Yeah. yeah, That happens next. It feels more like a movie instead of like a representation of your very favorite thing that isn't perfect. Right. Right. Yeah. We can't wait to go see this. Yes. It's going to be so fun. Mm -hmm. Again, you can get tickets at utahsymphony.org. We're so thankful for the symphony for giving us this opportunity to talk about Harry Potter, our favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Go to utahsymphony.org, get tickets. Again, that's June 20th, 21st, 22nd at 7 p.m. every night. I can't wait. Me neither. Next week, we're going to be talking about a movie that came out early this year that is completely insane. It's called Serenity. It stars Anne Hathaway, Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait for this discussion. Where do we watch it? On Amazon. If okay. you want to watch it in preparation, we'd love to have you join in. And we will see you next week. Thanks so much.